Welcome to the Joan Shorenstein Center on the Press, Politics, and Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. For more on events, news, and research, visit us at shorensteincenter.org. It is my great pleasure today to welcome our guest. Mark Gelman is uh, someone who has been getting an awful lot of attention these last weeks and months. Uh, he is one of the three reporters, journalists, who have been uh, in direct contact with the man who has really uh, put the world on its ear in terms of his revelations about domestic and foreign spying, electronic spying by the United States government, the National Security Agency. Uh, Bart, today in the Washington Post, had yet another significant scoop about the range and depth of the, uh, of the information gathering being done by NSA, which seemed to be in direct conflict with what the president has said. He is doing something, um, the kind of journalism that is really on the edge, uh, because it is something that uh, involves not just legal issues, but moral issues as well. And I'm very glad to have him here to engage these issues. He is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist. He is someone who has made a career of doing this kind of work, and he does it thoughtfully. He was uh, chosen by Mr. Snowden effectively to be one of the people who he wanted to act as the as an intermediary. And he told me something, I hope I'm not stepping on your, your, your remarks, but he told me something that I found very interesting today, is, which was that in his conversations or his connections, his contact, with his source, who he has never actually met. Um, he has been told by that source that he wants him to use the information, but use it responsibly and to do no harm. I think that's an interesting thing, and I think that that is, uh, maybe it's been reported, but it's not something that I was aware of, uh, Mr. Snowden having uh, communicated. In any event, uh, Bart Gelman, we're very glad to have you at the Shorenstein Center, and uh, the floor is yours. Thank you very much for having me here. Uh, you forgive me if I'm squinting a little. My computer's been making clicking noises lately, so I, I wrote this out. Not to mention his phone. By hand. Uh, <laughs> yeah, don't even get me started. Uh, what, uh, what Snowden told me, and by tell, anytime I say that, I mean that we communicated in uh, written form over channels as secure as he knew how to make them, which was pretty secure, since he was trying to, uh, I don't know, drop a dime on the surveillance state without being surveilled. Uh, his greatest fear was uh, either that he would be preempted uh, because he was taking enormous risks or that he'd be greeted by indifference, uh, that he would have overturned his life as he has done, and that there'd be a day or two story, uh, and then uh, the public would move on. Uh, he wanted a substantial debate on where the boundaries should be drawn uh, in, uh, in terms of uh, secret intelligence gathering in a democracy. Uh, I think it's fair to say that uh, he succeeded beyond all reasonable expectation in obtaining that debate. It's been four months now and change, and uh, there is a significant national and international uh, conversation going on about the NSA, but more generally about, about what the boundaries ought to be. And I've still, I'm still trying to figure out why that is. Uh, I mean, there's all kinds of interesting revelations, uh, but the stories are uh, often technical, operationally, or, uh, or legally. Uh, and uh, stories that would have seemed potentially as big as this um, in earlier years did not create this kind of sustained debate. And I think it's the case that after a dozen years uh, since 9-11, uh, the public at large um, is ready for a real conversation about the trade-offs, because there, always, uh, there always are trade-offs uh, between civil liberties and, and national security. Uh, I mean, just and also with, in terms of uh, other kinds of security, law enforcement, I mean, just to take the simplest example, which does obtain to some degree here 
uh, in the much more complicated world of electronic surveillance. You know, if you're a village police officer and a bike gets stolen in the village, the easiest thing to do would be to search every house and say, where's the bike? And it's probably going to work. Uh, but we don't do that sort of thing. And the, in fact, the whole sort of foundation of the country was in part in protest against uh, British general warrants. Now, a more modern day version of that might be uh, that the NSA is going to take a secret inventory of bikes in every house in the country. Uh, but don't worry, the privacy is protected. They'll only search it if a bike goes missing in your area, and then they can see whether there's a plus or minus uh, one bike in your house and so on. And, and, and there are some of the things that the NSA is doing that are not so different from that uh, in the sense that it is collecting all of your phone records, uh, which map all of your associations to everyone, whether you're calling, you know, whether you're calling a confidential source as a journalist or you're calling your, um, your, the person with whom you're having an extramarital affair or your psychiatrist or, uh, or anybody else, so whether you're, whether you're plotting a secret business deal, uh, merger, whatever. I mean, that, you, metadata, the record of who talks to whom and when is an extremely powerful thing. And I've often said that if I had a choice of having all of my calls listened to for 30 days or all of my metadata mapped, I'd much rather have the calls listened to because I have some control over that. I could decide what I, I, I'm going to say and not say on the telephone. I have no control over my metadata, which also could include location. So I am now proximate to all of you, and you're now first order contacts of mine, which you may come to regret. <laughs> uh, so Snowden is very much a polarizing force, and there's probably differences of view in here. And I know that uh, it may be that we have in here some of the national security fellows as well, and I hope if we do that you'll ask tough questions, because these there are tough questions being raised here across the whole uh, board of this debate, both in terms of public policy and in terms of uh, journalism. And I'll talk a bit about that. So big picture, what have we learned so far from the Snowden disclosures and from all the very good enterprise reporting uh, uh, that's been done around it, including by news organizations that don't have access to those papers? Well, a, a very simple way to put the answer would be that we are living increasingly behind one-way mirrors. Uh, in which uh, we are more and more transparent to our government and also to large uh, corporate interests um, who want to know all about us for marketing. Uh, and they are more and more opaque to us because the surveillance is accompanied by extraordinary levels of secrecy. Uh, and I think this does raise very big and important questions in terms of a self-governing democracy. So Snowden is polarizing. Uh, people uh, have very different views on him, although I'm fascinated and frankly surprised to learn that there has yet to be a poll, as far as I know, in which a plurality of Americans thought he did more harm than good. Uh, nevertheless, there are people who want to debate his actions, and there's a valid debate there, but my own view is it might be more important uh, to examine a very powerful government and hold it accountable for the power that it's exercising. I would say that that would be a higher priority for me anyway, journalistically. Uh, today's story in the Washington Post uh, says that, discloses for the first time, uh, that the NSA is collecting hundreds of millions, hundreds of millions of uh, <coughs> online address books, uh, chat buddy lists, and email inboxes to the extent that they, uh, that they provide new records of contacts, you might get an email from someone who's not in your address book, and they want to know all the people you communicate with. Uh, now, when I say you, it is not targeted at Americans. Um, all of the collection is done overseas, because it would be illegal if they tried to do that from uh, access points uh, on U.S. territory. Uh, FIS, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, restricts only electronic surveillance that targets Americans, and that's a term of art that's narrower than you might think, uh, and surveillance that takes place on U.S. territory. So in order to be have a free hand on this, the NSA is uh, using at least 18 access points overseas uh, to do this kind of collection. And uh, I would 
imagine, it's hard to tell from the documents or from the interviews I've done, that Americans are not its first interest, although it has been quite interested in the communications of Americans. Uh, but for a variety of reasons, which I'll summarize briefly, it is inevitable that uh, millions and probably tens of millions of Americans have been swept into this collection. And they keep the stuff. Uh, and uh, under certain circumstances, they're able to uh, search it and analyze it and use it and disseminate it around to other agencies. So we have here, uh, this, this, is, this is not the kind of collection that is, that is directed at specific known intelligence targets. It's the kind of collection which is intended to discover unknown targets, unknown unknowns, unknown plots, unknown plotters, uh, but it's it's not nearly limited just to terrorism. It has to do with um, its very broad range of interest in in foreign intelligence targets broadly defined. Uh, but again, it it has secretly made plans and executed those to collect uh, hundreds of millions of of, uh, of contact books, probably tens of millions of those belonging to Americans. And the idea that they've been saying all along that we're not interested in you and we're not we're not collecting on you which is what they used to say uh, is is either a lie or it or it, it uses the kind of specialized language that sounds like English but isn't and this is one of the things that uh, that we uh, that we, we pay a lot of attention to that you pay a lot of attention to in, in, in journalism uh, whether you're doing it or reading it reading it carefully uh, now, I don't approach this story as, uh, as, uh, as, as exposing um, evil or a sort of mwahaha attitude at the NSA. And uh, I, I think what's fascinating about this is that you can have very well-meaning people um, operating, you know, by and large out of good intentions and, and, uh, and a belief that they're doing their jobs who are told after 9-11 uh, and this is after decades of secret work in any case, uh, that they must not allow that to happen again. They've got to do everything they can to stop it. Uh, and they're creative and extraordinarily competent, and they are doing things that blow my mind, frankly, uh, in terms of capabilities and sort of cleverness in the way they employ those capabilities. Uh, and nevertheless, building a surveillance state uh, that is beyond the wildest imaginings of George Orwell. So it, it, is, it is a greater than Big Brother uh, kind of kind of surveillance capability without the malevolent intent, without the intent to suppress uh, citizens or to secretly manipulate uh, politics or anything like that. Nevertheless, it's developed this huge capability. And part of developing that is the belief that um, they can't talk about it, and not only that, but that if, if Americans ask too many questions, they're entitled to be more than opaque and uh, sometimes more than misleading, but even crossing into what I, with a fairly high threshold of, of uh, using this term, would call an outright lie. So you have, uh, in July of 2012, uh, General Alexander, the director of the NSA, um, asked by a Fox News reporter at a conference about the new Utah storage uh, repository and asked, will Americans' records be in there? And he says, we don't keep records on Americans. So there he was off by about a trillion uh, <laughs> because that's how many telephone call records it collects in a given year. Uh, it, there's no way for me to read that in which that statement is true, even with fancy language. On March 12th, actually I'll tell you, go back to March 10th. On March 10th, Senator Wyden Senator Wyden's staff told the, told the staff of, uh, of uh, James Clapper, the Director of National Intelligence, the day after tomorrow, I'm going to ask you a question in open hearing, saying, are there any kind of records that the NSA collects on millions or tens of millions of Americans? So the day after tomorrow, he asked that question, <laughs> and Clapper says, no. And so... Wyden is quite frustrated because he knows what the answer is. He's a member of the Intelligence Committee, and he has scrupulously followed the rules and not discussed classified information in public, but he knows that that is simply not true. 
the Snowden documents come along, and three months later, Clapper is asked to explain that answer, and he said it was the least untruthful answer that he could give. Uh, and I'll give you a couple of other examples here. Uh, and let's get let's get to the motivation first. I mean, there's, uh, Churchill famously said that in wartime the truth is so valuable that she must be attended by a bodyguard of lies. And it sounds great. Churchillian phrases always sound great. And you say, yeah, yeah, but then really, uh, are are we comfortable with the idea that in order to uh, protect us, that we should allow our government actively to lie to us, uh, and Alexander said something at a conference this past July that I attended. He said he wishes that he could bring all Americans into his huddle, <coughs> let us know what he's doing, but the problem with that is that if he does that, he's telling the bad guys as well. That's correct. That is true. Um, and it creates some dilemmas I'll, I'll mention. Uh, but it's also the case that if he brought all Americans into his huddle, as we've recently discovered, um, a lot of Americans would start <coughs> questioning the plays he's calling and would not like what he's doing. And a principal rationale for the secrecy here has been the belief, the correct belief as it turns out, that if the public knew what the NSA was doing, much of the public would not like it. And there I believe uh, that we can't allow, um, and that certainly journalists can't allow them to keep secrets for the purpose of avoiding accountability by the public that they're supposed <coughs> to serve. Uh, I'll go over a couple of quick things here. Um, oversight. They've talked a lot about vigorous oversight by all three branches. Well, in uh, 2009 it was discovered that the NSA was collecting, uh, sort of, was doing mass collections uh, that included a lot of American communications um, that the Justice Department, which was supposed to oversee it, had not known about uh, because it's endlessly complex uh, and they used fairly opaque language to describe what they were doing, and uh, the DOJ people either didn't understand the technology or didn't understand the uh, legal meaning of what was being done operationally. Uh, and so it goes on for a couple of years, and the DOJ finally figured it out, feels obliged to tell the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, and the Surveillance Court finds it to be unconstitutional, says that the, uh, that the uh, procedures of oversight have been breached so consistently over the recent years uh, that they essentially have not existed at, at all, and then, in this secret ruling, expands the NSA's power. It uh, says, okay, well, you could keep the uh, collected information on Americans for six years instead of five, and from now on, what you have not been able to do until now is all the millions of American records that you collect incidentally, because you're not targeting them. Once they're in your stored data repositories, you're allowed to search those records with American search terms. So you're not allowed to collect on Bart Gelman, but if you accidentally do, which happens millions of times a year, uh, you can search for Bart Gelman in your database uh, without any further need for authority from Congress or this court. Uh, judge Walton, the chief judge of the court, um, it was only the second chief judge or second judge of the FISA court ever to give an on-the-record interview. Uh, both of those were to my colleague, uh, Carol Lenning, at the Washington Post, and he said in August that the court has no independent capability to investigate what the NSA is doing. It relies entirely on what the government brings to the court and reports in order to make its rulings. Uh, Congress uh, also uh, has, as a whole, a very little idea uh, what the intelligence services are doing. Um, there are fairly extensive reports to the Intelligence Committee. Uh, the members vary in the amount of the depth of attention that they give to those. Uh, but <laughs> virtually no other member of Congress has a staff member who is cleared at the above top secret level and therefore able to get the briefings, hear the materials, uh, and brief their member, and members have a lot of other things to do in the world than to walk into a secure compartmented information facility and read a thousand page document for a couple of hours uh, and try to make sense of it themselves. Uh, and if you ask for a briefing, it can be manipulated. Again, because the NSA wants to do what it's doing, it thinks it's really important. It doesn't want to do anything that will allow someone to get a foothold into stopping it. 
Uh, that's basically the way most bureaucracies operate. But when you're not in the secret national security world, if you're doing agricultural policy or any of the other normal things that government does, there will be outside interest groups uh, who go through every comma in a 10,000-page regulation and call to attention things that are being obscured. That can't happen in the classified world. So uh, there was a uh, member of Congress the other day gave a very amusing uh, recounting without using the actual details of what it's like to try to get <laughs> information out of uh, the intelligence community um, in one of the classified briefings for which you're fully cleared. So he says, suppose you want to know, do you have a cyborg army? They say no. You say, well, do you have a cyborg navy? No. Air Force, you go down the line, you ask the question every way you can think of, and two years later you find out they have a whole bunch of killer cyborgs, but they don't call it an armed service because uh, the cyborgs can't take the oath, and uh, <laughs> therefore they're not commissioned officers in any way. They're still in beta, so saying they have it uh, is maybe uh, not quite right. Uh, and, I mean, and this is not an exaggeration in terms of the way that some of these briefings go on, on real intelligence operations. So, without transparency, some degree of transparency, and clearly intelligence services cannot operate entirely in, in the open, but without some degree of transparency, the political system uh, can't work, and the market system, by the way, also can't work. Uh, the, the thing that the... Um, National Intelligence, uh, the Director of National Intelligence Office most wanted me to withhold in the first story I wrote, which was about PRISM, the uh, program under which the NSA gets uh, details, uh, gets, gets uh, metadata and content from the nine large U.S. Internet companies. The thing they most wanted kept out of the story was the names of those companies. And I have talked to them about every fact and every story and made a lot of changes and withheld a lot of details that they said were sensitive. But I, I said, I'm not the decision maker here, but I certainly will not recommend that we withhold those names because if the harm you're worried about consists of uh, uh, sort of a, a reputational or business damage to companies because they're doing things that their customers or the public doesn't like, uh, or you're doing things with them that the public doesn't like, that's why we publish it. Uh, that's the nature of accountability reporting. That that lets other people in on the debate and the decision making. Uh, and still, some of you surely are wondering who elected me. Why should I be the one uh, to make these decisions? And uh, we can go through a lot of that in question and answer, but my, my fundamental answer is that there is a conflict of core values at work here, which is self-government and self-defense. And there is nobody who can be trusted to draw that boundary. And so it has to be done by a process uh, that actually is how it's done today, which is a, a kind of a, 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 a series of steps that involve competition first. Uh, they try to keep secrets and I try to find them out. Uh, and the people who perform the arbitrage have to take enormous risks in order to breach those secrets and therefore don't do so lightly. And then once I do find them out, there's a, there's a uh, fairly well understood procedure under which I go to the government First of all, to authenticate, to get context, to see what's right and wrong, uh, but also um, either implicitly or explicitly to invite a conversation about what harm would ensue if we published this story or this document. So if you look at today's Washington Post online, you'll see three documents, excerpts of three documents, redacted uh, by us, which is a very peculiar position to be in when you're a journalist, uh, because we were persuaded that uh, publishing those parts would do harm. And very commonly, more often than you would probably think, we reach uh, an accommodation that everyone can live with, where I feel, my editors feel, that uh, the, the sort of the important public interest in the story is being served, uh, and uh, they feel that the things they really care about in terms of national security are being kept out. Uh, I can talk a lot more about that and how it actually works, but I want to leave time for question and answer, so have at it. Let me ask the first, and uh, <coughs> I hope that you will respond to this. What do you think should happen? To what? To the, to the way the, to, to the, the, way the regulation this, works? To, to, to the way this debate unfolds and what the outcome should be. Uh, 
I will respond to that, but maybe in a less fulsome way than you would like. Is <laughs> <laughs> uh, this really, an NSA I, type I, response? I, uh, <laughs> uh, there will be no secret code here. <laughs> uh, I do not see my principal role as being an advocate, with, with, with limited exceptions. I am an advocate for truth-telling, uh, and I am an advocate for sufficient transparency to allow the public to govern itself. Uh, incorporating all the trade-offs that are necessary there. And by the way, I, although we do our best to avoid harm, I do not claim that there's no chance that any of the stories I've written are doing any harm, are disadvantaged, just as I would not claim that not letting the uh, village cop search every house um, does not uh, impose uh, costs to law enforcement efficiency. I mean, John Kennedy did not say in his famous speech that we will pay no price and bear no burden to secure the blessings of liberty. There are trade-offs. We're not willing to live in a state uh, that is entirely transparent, and we're not willing to live in a state that places security above all other values. Um, we do take risks. Luckily, we're a giant superpower, and uh, we, can, we can accommodate those risks. And if, in some cases, uh, there is a disadvantage to intelligence collection, uh, I'm, I'm not going to deny that that's possible. It's, it's actually quite hard to gauge. It's very hard to have a public debate about that. There have been many claims made over the years that try to point to specific harms that have followed, um, and uh, it's very seldom that one can authenticate those. And one of them that I've looked into very, very closely, that's probably the most common one you've heard, which is that a newspaper story disclosed that the U.S. government was surveilling uh, the telephone of Osama bin Laden, and he, and as soon as that story was published, he went off the air. It's simply untrue. Uh, I could give you an hour-long presentation on that. Uh, so it's hard. It's hard to get the. Uh, it's hard to get the cases. I. I would stipulate there must be some cases. Well, you're talking about the item that appeared in the Washington Times. Yes, there was a story in the Washington Times there, uh, that said that uh, it didn't say that the U.S. government was surveilling him. It said that uh, it said that bin Laden. Uh, communicates with the world uh, by satellite phone. That had been said for several years, including on TV, including in a TV uh, documentary that was made about bin Laden several years earlier, for which he posed for the camera holding the satellite phone. Uh, uh, and the other thing that happened the same day that the Washington Times story came out, and which, by the way, was plagiarized, um, that the, the language that they're citing had been printed verbatim in Time magazine, uh, some months earlier, and it did not cause Bin Laden to switch his, uh, cell, his sat phone off, despite the fact that Time Magazine at the time reached about four and a half million people around the globe, and the Washington Times reached 100,000. Uh, but the other thing that happened the day the Washington Times did the story was that Clinton sent cruise missiles um, and bombers um, and bombed, uh, and bombed uh, Bin Laden's training camps. So you decide which caused him to turn off his sat phone. <laughs> Also, President Obama in this has been repeatedly embarrassed by saying things that have, in retrospect, with new revelations, have proven to be apparently untrue. Uh, where do you put him in terms of his role? Is he willfully ignorant? Is he simply ignorant? Is he making a calculated, uh, least untrue statement that he can? What do you think is going on? I vote for door number three. <laughs> uh, I think that uh, by the time he came out and spoke on this, uh, first uh, in the days after the first revelations, uh, and then again in detail in, in August, he had been very well briefed. Um, he, he gets the fruits of this intelligence gathering. Um, he, he has no reason to be down in the weeds and uh, may, for example, not have known about the specific program I wrote about today. But he did say things that he knew to be untrue, uh, unless he's using special form. I mean, he said, for example, on that day that uh, that well, for, this is only metadata um, on the telephone calls. We're not getting content, and I mean, only net metadata. I would just say is is uh, is uh, not fully forthcoming about uh, what it means to collect metadata. But he said we cannot get the content. You cannot listen to your calls without a specific warrant. That's simply untrue. I mean, that's untrue from, you know, on multiple, you know, there are multiple paths under which they can and do listen to your calls without a warrant. Well, given that credibility is important for him, one would think, uh, 
when does one start making the calculation that it would be better not to lie about this if you're going to be repeatedly embarrassed by revelations that make you look like a liar? That's strange. I mean, everybody does it. I mean, it, it, it is the most common thing in in, in scandals. And, by, and and when I say scandal here, I mean only in the in the Michael Kinsley sense of uh, where he says that the you know the scandal usually is what's legal. Uh, and so, I mean, there's there's an unfolding story that they don't like and that doesn't make them look good, and they keep on sort of trying to draw lines and retreat only to that line, and then something uh, blows past that and they have to pick a new one. And I, I you know, it, it seems to be just human nature. Uh, yes, Nolan, I know you have to leave. You, you mentioned that the uh, offshore access points for collecting information via NAS, the NSA can't do legally. Is there a quick pro quo where the NSA has to share this information it collects with uh, members of uh, Echelon at all? Yeah, there, uh, Echelon um, was a program uh, that was first revealed decades ago. Uh, but in essence, there is a very, very close cooperative relationship among uh, uh, the UK and its former colonies. Uh, so you have the, the British, Australian, Canadian, New Zealand, uh, and uh, the English-speaking colonies, uh, and then the US. Uh, they call them the five eyes. There are a lot of things that are very highly classified, way above top secret. And, and they'll say, uh, you know, top secret, special compartment information, code name, F-V-E-S, meaning you can share that with the Five Eyes. And yeah, they do share information, not all of it, and it depends on the country. There are some what they call third-party countries, let's say Germany, who are not Five Eyes, but do have some level of cooperation. And they don't actually get everything that the NSA collects, even with their resources, but the NSA um, uses its uh, quite superior uh, technical capabilities to give them information they would not otherwise get on their own territory, and so they're happy to have it. First are students, and then uh, we'll go to the others. Yes? Well, I'm, I'm technically a research assistant developer center. Well, that's all right. Well, you're, 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 you fit close enough. I'm younger than many students. Um, <laughs> so so I, I, I was somewhat curious, though, about, um, I, my name's Alex Lewis, I'm a research assistant developer center, and I'm somewhat curious about the extent to which Americans are very informed about, let's say, like, not necessarily you, oh, Mr. Gellin, but like the other people in this room who have been paying attention, close attention to the things that have come out. Because by my reading of these articles, I have to get several paragraphs in before I start to realize that the, paragraph, the opening paragraphs and the headlines are substantially qualified later on. So the, using the um, FISA court judge, Reggie Walton, is a great example because the headline was, Walton says FISA court cannot investigate. And then later on, the rest of his quote was that just as is true for any other court. And you might raise, and you raise a valid point that, you know, with the other courts, that there are interest groups that investigate things. But there have been other stories as well, where, which calls into question whether or not Americans, when they just see the headline and see, like, the blurb of Fox News, are really understanding the extent to which there are, are checks, like the FISA court, which, after um, ruling that a major part of the phone metadata program was illegal under current law, said they needed to act, get a warrant every single time they even looked at the database. There's at least some dispute among reasonable experts of these programs as to whether or not there is high levels of, of um, checks upon the NSA conduct. My question is whether or not that those kinds of checks, or like at least the dispute, the educated dispute over those check kinds of checks, are making it their way down to the U.S. public. I just don't see, in my reading of the headlines, a lot of real nuance in the headlines. I see more towards playing towards scandal. I've, I've, it's a good example of this is I've actually stopped, when I read um, Mr. Greenwald's articles on this, I tend to immediately say, okay, well that's interesting, I'm gonna wait and see what the NSA's response to this is, because generally the first few paragraphs are Obama lies, and then a couple more paragraphs down, uh, like very, very much mitigating the earlier charges. Well, I won't play press critic for somebody else's uh, or my competitors' stories. Um, <laughs> I guess I shouldn't play press critic for my own, but um, I, I'd be happy to acknowledge that nuance is hard, uh, that it's hardly ever true that the public at large has time or inclination to master all the details. That's why you have, uh, you have people who specialize in a subject, whether they're journalists or researchers or, um, or uh, interest groups. Um, who uh, become sort of issue and opinion leaders, and gradually, uh, whatever they can, uh, uh, whatever whatever survives of their 
of, of their information or their advocacy makes its way or doesn't make its way into a bigger public debate. So um, <coughs> I would acknowledge that some headlines and leads uh, could lead to one impression when reading the story more fully would be more nuanced. That's also kind of a function of what headlines and leads are. I would strongly disagree that we mischaracterized Judge Walton's you know that, and that wasn't my story, so maybe I can oh, defend I, I it more. Uh, no, no, no. I mean, I, I'm not offended by this at all. I'm simply going to come back in the same way that um, that you're that you're you're coming to me, and you should. Uh, Wal Walton said we can't we can't investigate, and he also said just like any other uh, court. Well, first of all, the story demonstrated as well that it's not just like any other court uh, that or any other proceeding, because in any other proceeding you have it, you have another advocate. Uh, there, the the, uh, the 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 ex the, the typical ex parte case, um, either in FISA or a regular warrant or grand jury situation, is uh, that the government says, "I want to search Alex's house." Uh, don't tell him, uh, and uh, and the judge says, "Yay or nay." Uh, what's not typical is to have an ex parte proceeding um, about a secret interpretation of a law in which you're going to authorize um, and make a constitutional and statutory judgment about a program uh, that sweeps in everybody. Um, the, for example, the, the trillions of records. I mean, that, we don't have any, any comp comparison to that. Well, we, do have a well we can't have a debate now. Students. Um, can you add uh, two quick questions? So first, uh, could you talk through in your communications back and forth with Mr. Snowden, maybe some efforts that he made while at NSA to raise this issue to his superiors? Uh, to kind of get a clarification on the legality of it, if he had a legality concern. Um, and the second question, um, in a post-9-11 world where um, our expectations on intelligence are through the roof, um, if a future major cataclysmic event happened, um, we, we would be asking the same questions we asked after the first 9-11, which is <coughs> how did we not have intelligence to get to this? And so one of the things that we've been talking about in class a lot is we have to think outside of the box. So what do you think is being done with this information? And, um, you know, what are you, I guess, what do you think is being done with all this collected information? Sorry, which, what is being done by whom to what information? To the intelligence agencies. I mean, we, we kind of framed it in, in a way like uh, we're watching every individual that's in this room and, and kind of the communications are being held for six years. Why do you think that is? Why would they hold information for that period of time? Um, because it might be really useful, uh, and uh, and I don't dismiss the possibility that it might be really useful. Although it turns out that some of the things they've said about how useful it was, um, they haven't been able to back up. Nevertheless, uh, if you find out today uh, about a, uh, a potential conspirator. Um, in a plot that you did not know about three years ago, but you have the phone records from three years ago, and you have these extraordinarily sophisticated contact chaining tools, which means that you can draw three-dimensional maps of clusters of networks and you know uh, who communicates with whom, and you now not only know something about this name that you've just uh, looked at, but that there turns out that there's someone who has links to a lot of other people you already knew about that you never knew existed. Sure, that could be really valuable. Uh, it also enables you to do that for everyone, and the question is whether we feel comfortable letting the, the NSA have that much power. It is one line of code or one semicolon um, in a regulation away from being able to search that for any purpose. Um, and, and do we feel comfortable having that much power, latent power, in the hands of the government? As a citizen, as someone who is already working on a book about <coughs> the surveillance industrial revolution, I don't. But I don't need you to make that judgment. I, I, I think the public wants to make that debate. And somehow or other, uh, in a Republican-controlled House of Representatives, 200 people voted to end that program flat out, uh, which I, I never would have imagined. It came within, I forget, nine or 10 votes mm -hmm. of, uh, of passing. Students. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Hi, Olivia Zetter. I'm an MPP student here at HKS. I was wondering if you could speak a bit more about the potential positive and negative effects the leaks will have on U.S. businesses and the potential balkanization of the Internet. Okay, so balkanization of the Internet um, relates to um, some older debates that are getting new 
I hope I'm understanding the part of it you mean, but you're getting some new momentum now, which is to say uh, there's a lot of interest, uh, for example, in Europe in, um, in, in developing uh, sort of email and cloud um, and messaging services uh, and video conferencing and all sorts of other things that, that are not American-based companies, which dominate the whole global market for that, and, and do not cause data to be stored in the United States where it's susceptible to being... Mm-hmm. Uh, to being uh, sort of grabbed by the NSA. And there, there's a certain amount of, uh, there's a movement they call data sovereignty um, uh, or data localization. Um, there's a, a certain amount of probably understandable resentment. You can try to imagine it if, let's say, I don't know, France were collecting um, all your stuff and that that they really do, there's, there's no limitation on the use of that. There's, you know, foreigners have no Fourth Amendment rights and so on. Uh, and so th- there are there are people who are trying to create that. I, I don't know how that'll go. I think that um, the market forces have done what they do here, and so you now have. I mean, actually, I the latest example. I called Yahoo, uh, and and uh, sent them uh, a summary of what my story was going to say in today's paper, which was that uh, the NSA was gathering on average four hundred forty-four thousand address books from. Uh, from Yahoo users, and that that's twice as many as all other internet services combined. And did they think that might have to do with the fact that <coughs> Yahoo, unlike its major competitors, does not encrypt links to your computer? You log on to Yahoo, and you don't have the little padlock um, in your browser bar. Um, they've resisted um, using um, encryption by default for years. Uh, Google started doing it in 2010. Microsoft and uh, Facebook did it after that, um, and by the time yesterday's story was published, it contained an announcement by Yahoo that they were, uh, beginning on January 8th of 2014, going to uh, implement encryption by default for all of their connections to browsers. And so market forces are causing companies to, uh, to change. Until very recently, it was literally not possible to shop for privacy in, in an email or a cloud service because the terms of service were so opaque. You had no idea what they were going to do with it, but if you're a lawyer working for one of these companies um, and you don't write terms of service that say we can do whatever we want, then, then you know they look for another lawyer. Uh, and, and even if you understand the breadth of the terms, you don't know what they're actually doing uh, in practice. And you know, for purposes of the book that I'm writing, I did a little experiment. I hired um, a very good technologist to uh, to hack my iPad, basically to, uh, to, be, to play a role that the NSA does all the time, which is man in the middle. So that um, you think you're talking, you know, the famous way that cryptologists talk about this is Bob thinks he's talking to Alice, Alice thinks he's talking to Bob, but every time Bob says, hey, Alice, uh, somebody goes, ah, I'm Alice, and uh, then passes the message on to Alice, but listens to it in the meantime. So he did that for my iPad, and uh, I did some deliberately sort of embarrassing sort of searches. Like I went to some medical app and searched for, what, gonorrhea or something, and uh, he could do a pictogram in the background of what happened, and 18 flowers sort of blossomed off my me in the middle, uh, sending my data and my search in some cases uh, to um, 18 companies, most of which I had never heard of, that then sort of slice it and dice it and aggregate it and sell it. And, and uh, there's no way for a normal user to understand that that's happening to them. In the commercial world, I think that's going to change. Mm. Students, again. Yes, sir. Um, so I'm Chris McGuire, I'm an MVP student here, I guess. Uh, so you talked about the example of uh, James Clapper testifying to, to Senator Wyden in the sense of like, intelligence. Uh, and the answer he gave uh, is the least untrue, untrue thing I could say is uh, admittedly a horrible soundbite, but it's not entirely false, right? That he was under, Clapper was under competing O's at the time. And he, you know, he had both the oath to testify, uh, to tell the truth under oath, but he also had the oath to not you know, disclose classified information. Um, so consistently, if we're, if we're going to ask these questions in open hearings, elected officials are going to be faced with this dilemma of which oath do I violate? So in those circumstances, do you believe that elected officials should consistently uphold one over the other? Or if not, how do we determine when to violate one and when to what violate the other? Uh, well, first of all, there are other choices. Um, they're not as, uh, they're not as effective as Churchill's uh, in terms of, uh, of, of misdirecting people or of eliminating all suspicion, but it happens all the time in those hearings that 
the witness says, uh, uh, you know, any, any questions that you'd like to ask about scope of collection or means of collection, uh, would bring me into classified areas and uh, pardon me for saying I'll, I'll answer that in a closed hearing. Uh, they do it all the time and they could have done it here uh, and uh, I'm not exactly sure why Clapper did it the way he did it, but uh, I, I, I think there are very, very, very seldom uh, cases in <coughs> which uh, you cannot dodge a question rather than lie about it. Um, and sometimes dodging will be suspicious, but if you um, if you do it fairly consistently when you're we're dealing with classified information, uh, you know, so uh, if you asked me before Snowden uh, came along um, and 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 outed himself, which by the way is unique as far as I know in the history of American whistleblowing, uh, or or very close to that, I mean Daniel Ellsberg uh, tried did not announce himself when he was caught. He avowed proudly what he had done, but he didn't uh, come out and raise his hand and say, I'm the one who did this before anybody knew it. Uh, but if you ask me, is your source uh, Alex? Is your source uh, Peter? Uh, is your source Snowden? And if I answer the first two times and then stopped answering the third time, that would be a bit of a problem for me. But um, if I consistently say, which I do, I'm not going to discuss confidential sources, um, then you can uh, you can serve both purposes reasonably well. Yes. If, um, my question is: that if, if we think that privacy is long gone, what what difference does it make? for the NSA to be tapping on these databases if, if you know, if uh, someone with sufficient tech savviness can do the same thing? Uh, okay. There, people usually mean one of two things when they say privacy is long gone. Um, they mean it, uh, or three even, they, they, they sometimes mean it as um, a fact, get over it, um, and let's not debate it. Um, and that's been the, that's been the, uh, for several years now, the line taken by some of the large um, internet companies uh, for whom you're not the uh, customer, you're the product. Uh, that's the famous saying in Silicon Valley, you know, you get your Gmail for free. You're not the customer, you're the product. They're selling you. Uh, it's also the case that I pay a couple thousand dollars over the life of the contract for my Verizon wireless phone and I'm also the product for them. So it's not just when you get free services. Um, they're, sell they're, they're selling my... Uh, browsing and location data uh, with uh, unique device identifiers that can later be correlated to my name if somebody cared to do that. Usually they want it in the aggregate. So uh, sometimes they mean uh, you shouldn't care because it's too late. It's a way of preempting a debate. Sometimes they mean you don't care. Uh, these kids today, they'll put anything on Facebook. Uh, people have no idea that Facebook gets, I don't know, round numbers, I'm making this up, 3% of what it knows about you from what you tell it. and maybe uh, another relatively small amount of information about you from things that other people tell it and know they're telling it, and an enormous amount from data that they're, that they're gathering in the background themselves or from others and correlating with very sophisticated blah, blah, blah. So, uh, so, so the idea that we don't care is, I think, again, this is a transparency issue, uh, substantially based on the fact uh, that we don't know what's happening to us. And by the way, we do care. All of us have something to hide. We don't say the same things to our spouses as we do to our parents, as we do to our children, our bosses, our co-workers. There are things that, uh, it's a relational value, privacy. There are things that you're willing to tell someone. It doesn't mean you're willing to tell everyone. Uh, and it doesn't mean that you're willing to have um, some powerful institution have all that in its, uh, in its database. Um, so I think people actually do care. But by the way, people who don't think they care can be induced to think they care pretty quickly when they know what's happening. There's a guy in my office. Um, I, I spend most of, most of my time at the Century Foundation. And he's younger, and he tweets a lot, and he he's big on social networks, and he doesn't think that he cares about privacy very much. And he includes locations in his tweets. So I said, do you mind if I do a little experiment? And mm -hmm. I used a tool, which you could download online, called Creepy. Uh, I don't know where they came up with that name. And you can download um, uh, an entire list of locations, a date and time stamp from a Twitter account if it's been broadcast, and you can upload it to Google Maps. And uh, I went up, I went back to him a couple hours later and said, okay, so here's where you live, here's where you work. We knew that already. Here's where your kid goes to school. 
I don't know what that is, and I'm not asking. Uh, <laughs> go there once a week, and here's here's your in-laws. You spent a week there. Um, boy, you were up late that night, and he immediately went out and deleted all the locations from his tweets. Uh, and, and I'm able to find out the tiniest sliver of what um, either the NSA or the commercial companies can find out. Well, I mean, this does beg the question, though, that, that you know, if the, the, this horse is so out of the barn, is there any realistic prospect of putting it back in? And people, for the convenience of having cell phones and tweeting and so forth, have they made their accommodation now? Uh, well, I mean, they've made their accommodation because they, they don't think about it much and they're being induced not to think about it much. And because um, even if they think about it, they don't have the what to think about. They don't know what's happening. Uh, there, there, there are ways that the boundaries could be shifted for sure. There are. I mean, there obviously are. The, you, you, um, some of it is technology. I mean, there are technical answers. I've taken a lot of precautions over a long period of time to maintain privacy about things that I care about in terms of using anonymity software and encryption software and so on. Um, that's hard to do. It's not going to be widely used by the public and it's not fully effective. You, um, the technology can't be all of the answer. But law can, regulation can, um, lawsuits can. Uh, the, the government says everything it's doing is lawful, but it is working very, very hard to make sure that uh, no case presenting the, the uh, statutory and the constitutional question squarely gets into a normal federal court. Uh, and there's another example of that, you know, just yesterday. Uh, but, you know, the market forces and political forces and regulatory forces can shift the boundary if the information is available. But you think there is going to be a real marketing opportunity for someone who can basically erect privacy in a facilitatedly easy way to do it? Uh, it sure seems like there could be. I, I was on a panel a couple years ago with Eric Schmidt of Google, and he had recently said, uh, pretty soon we're going to be able to, you're going to be able to ask your telephone, your Android phone, where are my car keys? Isn't that great? And I said, good God, no. I mean, I don't want to ask my telephone where my car keys are because, you know, maybe they're behind the bar at the casino across town from the conference I'm supposed to be attending and I'm sleeping it off upstairs and never mind with whom. And, uh, and, and I don't want to ask my phone because I don't want you to know. Um, I mean, if you have this idea that you have this super empowered um, personal assistant like, you know, Joan on the Mad Men works only for you, but in fact she's reporting on you back to somebody else, and I said to him, you estimated in public that you get about $100 a year of revenue from each Android customer from the uh, information you sell. Suppose I pay you 200 will you let me use your really cool technology um, and not spy on me? And he didn't like the word, but his answer was no, it's not our business model. It could be somebody's. On these points, because he raised a very good point about the, you know, the private stuff that's going on, um, which I think he's absolutely right, which is why some people aren't as upset about <coughs> when they hear about the government <laughs> stuff because they feel like they're already being spied on. Could you briefly uh, explain what the state of regulation is for, pro for on the private side? None? No, not none. Uh, there are, uh, you know, there, there, are, there are specialized rules for medical information, uh, credit information, uh, telephone call data. Uh, uh, at least those three, probably others, uh, that prohibit certain things. And so, for example, you can't, you know, they, they can't link that information to what, what's defined in the law as personally identifiable information. And so what the companies do now, because there are a lot of really smart people with a multi-tens of billions of dollar market, um, is they come up with what companies always do with a lot of money at stake with ways around um, the regulations. So they're not allowed to... S they're not allowed to sell my name associated with this personal data. Uh, but sometimes they'll take a hash of my email address. Uh, a hash is a one-way mathematical function um, that scrambles it up. So my email address turns into 32 alphanumeric characters. Um, and the beauty of it, the math is supposed to be that um, it's easy to calculate, but really extraordinarily difficult. I mean, mathematically, actually, it's impossible to, um, to reverse it. However, uh, if every time they sell my data, it's the same hash. So this one knows that I live in zip code 10025, and this one knows I buy, you know, local beer from Fresh Direct, and this one knows, you know, pretty soon you get down to a universe of one, and that's what they do. It's also the case that you can re you can break hashes. Um, I won't get into all the details, but you can pre you can basically write down a list of every email <coughs> address in the world using a computer. Computers are good for that sort of thing, and then compute the hash yourself for each of those, and then you can match it with the one you don't know and, and identify someone that way. 
Yes. Apparently, there's a widespread feeling in the top brass, among the top brass of the NSA, that they have been left hanged out to dry by uh, by the president, by the administration. Mm -hmm. Do you have any thoughts on whether this will affect either the intensity or the uh, quality of the surveillance that's done, or have an effect on the interplay between the White House and the NSA, and what kind of information gets utilized? I don't have a very good feel for that. I. I I was at the Aspen Security Forum in July, and by an act of God, I'd been asked some months earlier to uh, chair a panel with uh, two former directors of national intelligence, Denny Blair and, and uh, Negroponte. And so I kind of, they were sort of forced to talk to me about surveillance for an hour in front of a lot of other people. Uh, and the, the group was not on my side at all, uh, i got to say, in terms of asking a lot of questions. Uh, it was a group of senior national security officials, uh, uh, president, former, but, you know, multi-star, currently serving officers, and so on. And the, and the feeling around the conference, and people were quite civil to me, including the guy who's prosecuting Snowden and maybe subpoenaing me as a witness. Uh, uh, but there was an angry, baffled feel to the room. Well, you know, why don't people trust us? How can they not understand that we've been We've been we've we've devoted our lives uh, to protecting them. Why you know why would you doubt our good intent? Uh, and so you have this uh, this this feeling of uh, an un an unfair loss of trust, and institutions that are are subjected to that sort of thing do feel burned and probably do adjust their behavior. Certainly, the scandals of the 1970s, exposed by the Church Committee led to a long period of time when the NSA was extremely cautious about staying one side of the rules. Uh, that changed to 9-11 when Hayden famously said he's going to play with chalk on his cleats. And it turns out, you know, he went over the line uh, more than he acknowledged. Yes, Can you speculate why we haven't seen more of a push for phone companies to stop keeping the records the NSA is getting under FISA subpoenas? And, you know, I don't mean the records they get by espionage. I mean the records they get from subpoenas. It seems like that should be coming, and the business case for that should be happening, and your Eric Schmidt example is counter to that, too. Well, what's your business case if, you're, if you are substantially a local monopoly um, or, or a national monopoly, because there are only three companies that, that uh, connect your calls um, nationally and internationally? Uh, well, there are five or six, but there are three that have almost all the traffic. Uh, they've been cooperating with the NSA since um, at least the 70s under a um, uh, program cover named Blarney. Uh, which is a great cover name, uh, as all of them are. They're all great cover names. Uh, and unlike the Silicon Valley companies, which do have lots of competition, you have not heard one word from any of them uh, about uh, about sort of their need to protect user privacy, or they're shocked, shocked to hear what's been going on, or uh, or they're going to make some changes. In fact, uh, things that uh, chairman of AT and T who came out a little while ago, poo pooing all these all this stuff. So there's, there's no business pressure on them at all. Why do they keep the data? Because they can sell it, because it's useful to them. I mean, look, let's take it a cell phone company. They need to know where I am and what number I'm dialing in order to place the call and to connect me to a local cell tower and to bill me for the call. Um, they don't need to keep it much longer than that, uh, but they keep it for 18 months because it's, it's great for mining, either by the NSA or law enforcement, which often gets that without a warrant although that's <coughs> under some legal assault in different circuits around the country, um, and also intelligence agencies. So um, there, there is a considerable overlap most of the time of interests uh, between the commercial side, law enforcement, and, and intelligence. What's happening right now because of these stories and the debate that they've caused and legislative initiatives is that you're getting some wedge drawn between their, between, between their interests. Yes, sir. Um. If I were an advocate for the national security state, I would think Keith Alexander should be fired for presiding over the student security breach. And if I'm an advocate for civil liberties, I would think Keith Alexander should be fired um, for the breach of civil liberties. Why does he still have a job? <laughs> or contempt of Congress. I don't know. Maybe he's really good at his job. Maybe, uh, maybe, uh, maybe Obama really values the work he's doing. Maybe Obama thinks that firing him would do more harm than good for his uh, political position, uh, so that even though he may not be coming out every day saying, you know, Keith Alexander is a great patriot and doing his job just right, um, that to fire him would be to um, 
look like scapegoating for things that he himself clearly has authorized. Who knows? I mean, it could be an accommodation. Of Do you think that the that the uh, lawsuits that are aimed to uh, free Google and others to talk about what they have been doing, which they are now legally not allowed to do, are going to be successful? I don't know whether the lawsuits will, but I think um, legislatively, um, I, I think some combination of uh, legislation, sort of um, calculated, uh, uh, calculated concessions by the executive branch, saying, "Okay, we won't fight. You can do this much, but not that much," and uh, and possibly lawsuits uh, will will probably push back the boundary. But Bart Gilman, I. No, okay, one last. Yeah, um, I heard somebody say on TV that as soon as some member of Congress's porn searches are released, there will be regulation of this. And what I don't understand is why, you know, we've already had several instances of, of, of political opponents being defined as enemies of the state. I mean, Carl Rove sort of did that, and Nixon. So since we know that it's conceivable that you could define somebody politically as an enemy of the state and therefore justify, you know, going after them, with this national security surveillance, why I, I don't understand why there's not more kind of understanding of that. If I had any evidence uh, that uh, the NSA was using its uh, resources to um, to sort of spy on political opponents or civil liberties groups, especially journalists, uh, <laughs> uh, believe me, that would be a very interesting story for me. Uh, and I don't have that now, and so. Uh, you know, it's still hypothetical. I think you're right. I mean, you need to have the porn search uh, made public before it has the uh, political impact. You have some knowledge of this. <laughs> <laughs> I think we can stipulate most of that. Plain <laughs> round envelope. Uh, we, uh, I have plus. no doubt that we're going to be hearing more from Bart Gelman. Thank you very much, Bart.